uh, it seems there are a few cars blocking the road. So we're flying everybody in. Okay. Mr. Richie Haven. I think sometimes you don't know that you're living through history, but then sometimes you find yourself in a moment and you're like, oh my goodness, this is historical. Woodstock was an event where I think people who were there knew that it was a time that, you know, they, they were, they knew that this was a, a special time in their lives. It was a special time in the world and they were in the right place at the right time and they got to be there. Fifty years ago, as UNT music librarian Sarah Utier just eloquently noted, a tidal wave of history crashed through the American consciousness, leaving an indelible impact that was undeniable even then, and undoubtedly remains a half century later. First came the Stonewall Riots, demonstrations by the LGBTQ community against police raids that are often viewed as some of the most important milestones for the early gay rights movement. So I don't think it matters who threw the first bottle or who threw the first anything. You know, I, I think what matters is that a community came together to say, stop it. Then there was the Apollo 11 space launch, an almost unbelievable sight in which the first men achieved the unthinkable by stepping foot on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And finally, just a few weeks later, more than 400,000 people trekked to a 600-acre dairy farm in upstate New York for some pretty memorable musical performances that would later become known as Woodstock. That's Ann McCutcheon speaking to us by phone from her home in Colorado. A UNT alum and former professor of creative writing, in 2016 she penned a book titled Where's the Moon? A Memoir of the Space Coast and the Florida Dream. McCutcheon spent her childhood in Titusville, Florida, where the Apollo 11 launch took place, and like many who were alive at the time, was astounded by NASA's successful mission to the moon. Unlike most, she had a front row seat to history. My family moved there. Uh, when I was 11, sixth grade, and I graduated from Titusville High in 1969 um, and was there to see the Apollo 11 launch. President Kennedy uh, uh, announced we would get a man on the moon by the end of the decade. He said that in the early 60s, and so all of us felt like we did that. <laughs> Everyone who lived there was a part of it. We'll hear more about McCutcheon's firsthand experience of the launch, as well as from other University of North Texas connected experts who became intimately acquainted with these historical moments, either through personal experience or their academic explorations, in this episode of UNT Pod devoted to the society shaking events of 1969. Join me, Aaron Crystallis, along with Melissa Brown and Chris Muller, as we explore the reverberations of these movements on the U.S. then and now, and what lessons we can continue to take away from these important milestones 50 years later. Everybody's talking about 
It's hard to overestimate the effect of the Apollo 11 launch, in which astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, in a spacecraft piloted by Michael Collins, planted the American flag on the moon. The event, as McCutcheon notes, drew hundreds of thousands of people to the typically small town of Titusville. It was, after all, an extraordinary moment in time that ultimately shaped modern technology, the NASA space program, and perceptions of what's possible. Um, there, was no, there wasn't enough room for everyone. The motels um, and little hotels were filled, and people were camping on the median strips, in parking lots, and many of us camped out on the shore of the Indian River overnight. Um, and I was among them. Um, it, it was it was like it was like Woodstock except a month early. It was <laughs> it was an incredible uh, event because so many people were involved or interested. It was it was such a historic occasion. There's a fishing pier um, in the town and a, a very long pier and. I was camped out not, not too far from it with a, a family of uh, one of my high school friends. And people were out there playing guitars and singing Michael Rowe, the Boat Ashore, and all those um, Peter, Paul, and Mary songs. And it was, it was very, it was sweet. It was, uh, it was lively and very sweet. You know, for, for those who weren't alive at the time, who didn't get to experience that spirit of possibility and unity, what lessons do you hope they internalize as the 50th anniversary rolls around? Hmm. Um, I suppose they, they might want to tap into um, the idealism of the time. Um, and, and President Kennedy uh, was... Uh, the one who sparked it in the, in the early 60s and said, we can do this by the end of the decade. We can put a man on the moon. We meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear, in an age of both knowledge and ignorance. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come. But condense, if you will, the 50,000 years of man's recorded history in a time... There are a lot of challenges now <laughs> um, that we could put a top spin on, uh, that um, we could get behind and, and, um, uh, and, and meet. I'm thinking now of um, things like environmental matters, um, for example. But uh, changes that, that that we know that we have the technology to do or we would have the technology if we said, okay, we're doing it. <laughs> we'll invent the ways um, or expand the ways to, to uh, solve problems. I think it's the same sort of spirit we're behind some of the challenges we face now. We could get things done like they did then. Brothers and sisters, I want to see you see a hand out there. Let me see you see a hand. I want everybody to see a hand. 
the king of Sonora. I want to hear some revolution out there, brothers. I want to hear a little revolution. Brothers and sisters, the time has come for each and every one of you to decide whether you are going to be the problem or whether you are going to be the solution. You must choose, brothers. Ron Diulio better known to those of us at UNT as Starman, is the Planetarium and Astronomy Lab Director at UNT, as well as a professor of physics and astronomy. And, like McCutcheon, was inspired by the incredible innovations of NASA's space program. He was 20 when Apollo 11 launched, about to be married, and had long been a fan of space and science fiction. His love of space was initially launched by a stamp collection, and as a teen, he requested autographs and pictures from astronauts around the country, befriending several in the process, including Apollo 12 astronaut Alan Bean. Today, Starman is wearing his NASA nerd t-shirt. No surprise, considering he is the ultimate NASA fanatic. Astronauts have long been his heroes, just as they were heroes to many at the time. That's part of why he's saddened that in the years that followed the launch, despite the incredible technological leaps taken by the space program, the public's interest in astronauts and scientists has seemingly fallen to the wayside. Uh, there was a time that a space event was a newsworthy event. ABC News presents the flight of Apollo 11, beginning 30 hours of continuous coverage of the lunar landing. Good day from ABC Space Headquarters in New York. It is July 20th. 1969, and man is about to land on the moon. Eagle will touch down approximately four hours and 17 minutes from now, if the flight plan as it is now established uh, goes forward as scheduled. With me is our science editor, Jules Bergman, and we will be here from now on for what uh, will be uh, truly a historic time in the life of our country and in the existence of mankind. I, I continue this day to be what they call a solar system ambassador for NASA. And, and my job is not only to translate, but to, to describe to the public what's happening and why it is important to them. In the beginning, we were, our news, all of our outlets, and the, which was easier to, because you had more of a targeted place to go when you wanted to get a message out. You had some TV stations, you had four networks, you had, but what happened was they thought that was important and they would publicize it. And, and I know even, even in the last 20 years, the change has come to where the people on those flights had names and personalities. I can name all seven of the first Mercury astronauts. I cannot name the hundred or so shuttle astronauts, except for the ones that had the misfortune of not being with us anymore. So what happened? What did happen? We found new TV programs that are more interested in, de in defining the lives of an entertainer than the lives of an astronaut or a scientist and what they're doing for our community and for our, our society. Another part of Starman's role as a NASA ambassador is to explain the applications of the space program's development. It's astonishing to think, he says, about the limited technology that sent Apollo 11 to the moon. I want to start off by a shocker. You, our phones have 10 times the ability of the computer that took them to the moon. Okay, we'll start with that. We'll start with the fact that the things that we look of as commonplace, like our smart watches, were 
science fiction. So that whole concept of science fiction or prediction became a theme that I still to this day use for my talks. That the things we consider commonplace were are less than 50 years old. Some, the, 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 the dreams weren't even there. Well, I'm wondering, you know, as we get further removed from that, I mean, obviously it's going to be, it's 50 years this year. Um, how do you, how do you see, like in the classroom, when, I'm assuming you probably talk to your students about that. Does it strike them as being as incredible as it actually was? I mean, how do you think the years have kind of shaped people's impression of that moment? My feeling about students' responses is that students are not as amazed by the event and the whole system, but I think they're more aware of what does it mean in terms of what we're going to do. In other words, not well, you know we've done it just like uh, many other uh, achievements that we've had, but what are we going to do? The concern with a lot of students now is they want to go to Mars. And uh, they, going back to the moon is not as exciting now to the, this student. Going to Mars is. Starman also reminds students that astronauts have always come from various fields of study. They're engineers, astronomers, geologists, doctors, pilots. That variety of talent is still needed today, he says maybe more so than ever. So when it comes down to it, the one thing, if I was to say one thing that we all need to do is we have to make sure that we still have good communication. Everything we've ever done has, is only because we work together and there's more and more people that are needed. The, the technology has become so difficult that you have to have a team of people to do it. People say, well, what, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you know? I said, well, I look at my mind as a little thimble, and all of the knowledge about the universe is like an ocean. I can't expect to put that ocean in my thimble, but if you get enough thimbles together, you'll start getting more and more of the ocean. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven, six, commencing countdown engines on. The concept of joining together was just as important when it came to the Stonewall Riots, considered by many as the beginning of the early gay rights movement. They began in the early hours of June 28, 1969, and were queer uprisings against local law enforcement in places where queer individuals gathered, places like the Stonewall Inn in New York City. The 1960s and before were not welcoming times for LGBTQ plus individuals. Relations between same-sex individuals were illegal in New York, and the New York State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected LGBTQ plus individuals. LGBTQ plus individuals flocked to gay bars and clubs, places of refuge where they could express themselves openly and socialize without worry. 
I'm Melissa Brown, and joining me is Clark Pomerleau, Associate Professor in the Department of History. He teaches history of sexuality and gender history. He's on the Women's and Gender Studies Executive Committee and serves as the LGBT Studies Advisor. His research has produced a book called Califia Women about lesbian feminists doing intersectional work against racism, homophobia, and classism in the 70s and 80s. And he's also produced work on topics such as feminist views on sexuality and has recently written a textbook chapter on U.S. LGBTQ history. Also joining us is Suzanne Inc., Associate Professor in Communication Studies and an Allied Professor for Women's and Gender Studies, who serves on the Women's and Gender Studies Executive Committee. She teaches courses in gender and rhetoric, but also courses on social movements at both the undergraduate and graduate level. Her research deals primarily with issues of violence, so she does a lot of work with domestic violence, sexual assault, and incarceration. Her current research has her writing a book analyzing narratives of incarcerated women she interviewed, talking about their stories of abuse and incarceration. The Stonewall Riots have been characterized as the beginning of the early gay rights movement. Why do you suppose that is, and why is it important to have a beginning? In its origin, initially, that Stonewall riot was opposition to police brutality, which was inseparable from the right to be gay or lesbian or trans in public space. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you get um, a gathering of people after the riots that included groups that were not gay, lesbian, or trans, but had also been unsuccessful in confronting police violence right. and were looking to for how did this work here. Right. So that kind of falls out of the equation later on as people are celebrating being gay. Um, in 1966, San Francisco yes. was a similar yes. type of, of issue with um, police brutality mm -hmm. against trans and homeless youth, mm -hmm. but it didn't get the, the media coverage. Right. And so, as noted, this year later, you had a commemoration not only in New York City, but in right. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, right. a number of other cities. And this shows that that kind of narrative of the origin mm -hmm. um, had had was a was known across mm -hmm. the country. Speaking of the activism that resulted from the Stonewall riots or occurred around the same time as they did, how do you feel that affected other activist groups or movements like feminism or even civil rights or vice versa? And how did that influence the views of homosexuality going forward? I would say like with all, it is complicated, <laughs> right? So I think, you know, especially when I think about feminism, right, that I would never say there's a feminist movement, right? There's many feminism pockets happening at the time. Um, if we're thinking about mainstream feminism, right, especially like the National Organization for Women, this certainly, um, Stonewall was part of a larger conversation that was in, um, offering, especially lesbian women, a space and a ability to really push for what they might call a woman-identified woman space to say that like, the only way we can dismantle patriarchy is for women to be woman-identified. I would say that the organizing after Stonewall is part of this broad activist conversation mm -hmm. about tactics and issues. Yes. And so right out of Stonewall, you get the Gay Liberation Front. Yep. And 
they have some members who had been in the homophile organizations, yeah. but they're not operating that way. Yeah. They are broad. They have much more confrontational direct action tactics. Mm -hmm. They um, borrow tactics from the anti-war demonstrators. Mm -hmm. They support the Black, Black Panther yes. Party. Um, they support the radical new left causes. So mm -hmm. they have this very, very broad platform. And soon after that, by the end of 1969, you get um, the Gay Activists Alliance, mm -hmm. which on one level is kind of narrowing back in on the gay issues, mm -hmm. but they're still incorporating these tactics. Yeah. It took some time, and I would say over time, you have groups like the Black Panthers and Young Lords starting to um, recognize the importance of this sort of cross-pollination of ideas. Um, but I wouldn't say it was immediate because in many ways um, issues of gender and sexuality were still deeply misunderstood and you also still had a great deal of say misogyny and homophobia within those organizations and transphobia right that that wouldn't even be been called phobias at the time because there was not the language to even talk about it in that same kind of way it was you know, just the norm it was the norm yeah so what would you say is the ultimate legacy of the riots how did the effects of the riots reverberate into the current day and what was the overall historical significance of the Stonewall riots? So I would say that the riots provided an opportunity for disenfranchised trans women mm -hmm. and non-conforming young people um, to assert their right to hold public space mm -hmm. and then to organize for political gains. Um, but their authentic existence was a challenge not to the norms it was a challenge to the norms of white, middle-class, gender-normative mm -hmm. Americans in general, but also white, middle-class, gender-normative gay and lesbian Americans. Mm -hmm. And so when gay rights leaders were liberal, but not necessarily radical, mm -hmm. um, that became a, a, a sticking point or a tension. Mm -hmm. And this has historical significance because racism and classism, cis-sexism, these are divisions of ideology that continue to affect who gets a voice, who gets into leadership, continue to affect determining what issues um, to work on to better queer people's lives. I, I would probably add that you know, 50 years onward, we have kind of the benefit of looking backward now, right? So that Absolutely. While at the time, or maybe like in the past you know, 40 to 50 years, the narrative has not necessarily been this is a, a, a movement of street youth and sex workers and trans women of color, right? Like that wasn't necessarily how the story has been told over the past 50 years. To that point, uh, for young members of the LGBTQ plus movement and their allies, do you think it's more important to look back? at events like Stonewall or to look forward to the possibilities that lie ahead and how can we temper the two to find balance? I think both and, right? That I don't, I mean, I'm a big proponent that we have to understand the past to be able to think about the future. Um, I think we're in a moment right now where we have people really actively working on social justice issues who are doing really important work, but who also don't always think about where historical figures and movement leaders or movements came from, right? So as I was thinking about this week, you know, I've been going back and watching just kind of old documentaries about the time. I mean, I'd, I'd put out of my mind, at least momentarily, right, that there used to be government-produced videos mm -hmm. threat, you know, about the threats of gay men, right? And 
that, that were so overt that if you know Saturday Night Live were to make them now, we'd be like, oh, that's hilarious. But it's not because they were real, right? And so to really, I don't. I know my students for the most part have no idea that that would have ever been part of like actual educational efforts, right? And so I think when we especially when we critique kind of early movement leaders for not being radical enough or not, you know, doing enough. Part of that is that we're reading it through a lens of now, right? Of what people have opportunities to push for now without recognizing the different kinds of threats that people were operating under in the 1950s and 40s and 60s, right? So that you had a climate that was so threatening in a way that I don't know that today's you know, like young adults are, are incredibly aware of that. Like if I'm teaching, I need to teach that stuff so that I can also be able to have conversations with my students about like, right, how do we go forward, but also recognize that these struggles are similar to what was happening in the sixties or seventies, like in different kinds of ways, but also maybe have a little more grace for folks that didn't do it perfectly then, because guess what? Like 50 years from now, people are gonna look back on us and be like, wow, you really, you did not have that right. And we have to go right because we were working with the set of exigencies that we had at the time and that, you know, the resources that we had at the time. And, and I think one of the legacies of Stonewall is the development since then of a full-fledged professional field of LGBTQ yes. history and yeah, LGBTQ yeah. studies. I'm Chris Muller. For three days in mid-August of 1969, 33 musical groups performed for nearly half a million people gathered together in a remote farm pasture in upstate New York. The event became the concert and cultural legend called Woodstock. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? The music of the 1960s represented a generation that was concerned about the environment and was angry about the Vietnam War and economic and social inequality. The decade gave birth to revolutionary forms of rock, jazz, and folk revival and influenced all music to follow. Boutier, who is a UNT alumna and the music librarian for digital and audio services here at UNT, joins me to talk about why Woodstock was this musical and cultural phenomenon. 
Sarah, I guess we need to start with what was happening that led up to the 60s that created this perfect storm for something like Woodstock to happen. Yeah, I think in the 50s um, and even before that, there was a lot of um, post-World War II patriotism, um, a lot of uh, you think there were the people coming back and they had the GI Bill so people were able to go to college. Um, you were able to support a family on um, one person's income. And also people had a little bit more um, disposable income so they could go out and buy records and singles, 45s. And so there was kind of like, I don't want to say the music was more wholesome, but it was definitely a lot more kind of innocent and kind of sock hop that sort of music you think about blueberry hill and (laughs) kind of that sort of music and then in the 1950s a lot of things started changing uh for instance the vietnam war got started and eventually became very unpopular uh it was the beginning of the Civil rights movement was in the 1960s, so there was a lot of unrest around that, rightfully so. There was also the gay rights movement starting, of course, with the uh, Stonewall Uprising. And so I think it was a time of a new generation was coming into their own, and they were starting to look at the world and say, we're not okay with this. I think that that is what led up to Woodstock and kind of moved away from kind of like the sock hop formulaic uh, music of the previous generations and moved towards some of the more experimental music of the 1960s. How would you describe Woodstock as a reaction to the war and you know, the more violent events of that decade? As I said before, the music was a lot more experimental. It was a lot more expressive and not so formulaic. It also was billed as this peace and love and kind of art and melding all these things together and so it was kind of a touchstone in that it was a reaction to the times but it was unique in that it wasn't a violent reaction and so it was this beautiful festival of love and it was initially you know everyone was concerned about the hippies coming to town and what would happen and then it turned out that there was very little crime and it didn't you know like ruin the town and it ended up being really a success in terms of just the harmony, the cooperation and um, the music. back on Woodstock. I mean, it seems like so many things went wrong, but uh, in the end, all the chaos seemed to actually bring people together. I don't know how many they were expecting, but it ended up being approximately 400,000 people in this field. (laughs) And so at the beginning, it started out with like traffic jams, uh, nowhere to park, They just like suspended traffic laws. Um, They had to helicopter the musicians in. The lineups 
had to be changed because people were not available to actually perform when they were scheduled. They had, like, the, the lines to the temporary toilets were <laughs> miles long. And then it rained and rained and rained. And that also affected the lineup and the schedule because, you know... There were times when people couldn't play. There were bands that refused to play in the rain. Um, the Grateful Dead had a power failure, and they were, like, being shocked by their instruments and the microphones because of the the rain and the electricity. So despite all of that, it ended up being really successful. And you've actually got a quote from a band member about that <laughs> shocking moment. Here it is. Every time I touch my instrument... I got a shock. The stage was wet and the electricity was coming through me. I was conducting. Touching the guitar and the microphone was nearly fatal. There was a great big blue spark about the size of a baseball and I got lifted off my feet and sent back eight or ten feet to my amplifier. And that's Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead speaking to Rolling Stone. I think in the moment there were there was probably a lot of discomfort there just because of the conditions but like I said people came together and cooperated and they interacted with the the local community and the businesses there and in the the 1970 documentary Woodstock it even interviewed a lot of the townspeople to say that um who said that it was a good thing for them they kind of rose above their kind of worldly situations with the porta potties and the mud and the the crazy long traffic and they switched up the schedule and played extra long sets and there were people who played well into the night Jimi hendrix actually closed out the festival and his set was supposed to be on i think it was sunday night but he ended up playing on Monday morning because it just got so delayed between the rain and everything else. And so despite the fact that it could be, in many ways it was a catastrophe, but everyone was just so about the music and the experiment and the art that they really kind of still pulled together. And so I really don't think that you can recreate something that just is so iconic and uh it's like catching lightning in a bottle you can't just recreate that but also as time goes on and you look back at it it just becomes even more legendary it was like i said it was a response to the time it was the music of the time and music is so important to every culture and so the music really if if it was if you were of that Woodstock generation, that music was really important to your life then, and then that music also influenced all the music afterwards. Did the festival specifically launch any music careers? I think some notable ones were uh, Richie Havens, who he actually opened the festival because um, the act that was supposed to start it was not there because of the traffic. Freedom. 
And so he was kind of relatively unknown and Woodstock really launched his career. There's also an artist named Melanie and she was relative she I think she had like a radio hit. So she'll have a quote from her. So this is her speaking to Life magazine. She said, I was a total unknown. I had this really nervous cough that sounded like I was dying of tuberculosis. Joan Baez sent me a cup of hot tea from the Star Tent. After Woodstock, I got to do every festival and I became a festival queen. So I think that was really nice and kind of, she kind of typified that bohemian hippie festival kind of, you think about back then there was the the hippies and now it's kind of like the Coachella sort of <laughs> um, remake of the hippie festival. Um, that was pretty cool. It was also the, I think the second time that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young had performed together as a foursome. It was also the, I can't remember if it was the first time that uh, Santana performed, really put them on the map. to the way uh, events like Woodstock are ultimately framed by history and how a current generation experiences its legacy. So music has always been an important outlet for people to express themselves in every every movement since recorded history. It's been there. You know, the suffragettes had music. The civil rights movement has music. The just even now, there are so many artists who are reacting to our current political climate. And so it's really interesting because history is cyclical and uh, time is a flat circle and what is old becomes new again. And so it's really easy to look back at a time similar to our time. And this is, some would say, a build up to a cultural revolution was what led up to Woodstock and led up to, for instance, the protests of Vietnam and the U.S. withdrawal from that, that conflict, and then also the Watergate era and, you know, the resignation of President Nixon. And so it's like there was this time and it just, like, bubbled up. And so I think that it's similar to what we're experiencing now, where there is... A counterculture and so the counterculture is coming against that and music and art will always be important will always be part of that resistance
Thanks for listening to UNT Pod. Feel free to share your own personal connections to the Moon Landing, Woodstock, or the Stonewall Riots by connecting with us on Twitter at UNT Social or on Instagram at UNT and using hashtag UNT Summer of 69. Also check out our previous episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or by visiting northtexan.unt.edu slash online. I got